0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Greg Kelly. He is a member of the National Assembly of Quebec for the writing of Jacques Cartier. He also happens to be the official opposition critic for relations with English-speaking Quebecers and for Indigenous Affairs, two files that have kept him busy and quite solicited these last months. On this episode, he gives his take on Bill 96, which proposes new amendments to Quebec's Charter of the French Language, systemic racism in Quebec, and particularly towards Indigenous groups, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh Greg Kelly. Thanks so much uh, for coming uh, back
1: to the podcast, man. I appreciate George. it. Thanks for having me, having me on again.
0: Last time you were on, it was I think a little over a year since you were first elected. You're yep. still getting to know a little bit uh, the the environment, even though you had worked behind the scenes. I mean, you weren't completely unknown to the workings of Parliament, um, but this time around, you were uh, you were as an elected official. Uh, the the this first rookie mandate is almost done I mean you're you're about a year uh, uh, to to the end to to the next election how have things been Um, how have you found your space your place Uh, how's the whole experience for you
1: I mean uh, for sure the pandemic has been a a huge change. I mean, I didn't get elected thinking that uh, the world would be hit with the global pandemic. Uh, that really uh, changed things for everyone very quickly. Um, changed the role too. I think of the local M As for a good period of time, where uh, we really had to push very hard for our our, our citizens uh, in in really a critical situation. You know, I mean, the, the, what happened in the days and the seniors' homes of Quebec. Uh, was serious that hit us in the west island pretty hard so we spent um you know we always as mnas and our staff do that you know work on the ground as you know super well getting files resolved by ministries but you know they kind of come sometimes in, in in ways where this was just you know we were 24 7 really with people reaching out to us asking for guidance asking for assistance so uh, it just, you know, we had some very long stretches where, you know, we were all working almost uh, not just as uh, political representatives, but as social, you know, uh, service workers in some some senses, mental health uh, workers in some senses, because people were reaching out who were afraid, who were lonely, uh, who were struggling themselves. So, I mean, that uh, that was again a challenge that nobody saw coming, and I wasn't expecting to have to to manage my first mandate. So. I've gotten a little grayer, George, since the last time uh, we were on. they popped out of the beard on the side of my hair, and I think they're rightfully uh, earned. So, uh,
0: yeah, I hear it's in style now. So, like, <laughs> you
1: what know, people are going for, anyway. Yeah, know, but I feel like you know, in in some ways, I mean, of course, last year was long for everyone, but. Uh, I, I feel like i lived you know a good five years in the span of of about a year and a half so uh it's just unbelievable really what uh what took especially, place and 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 you know especially i was gonna say
0: especially since that already is the case in politics like yeah. you know yeah. one mandate yeah. four years or whatever it is even if it's a it's a minority government for two years it feels like literally an eternity
1: yeah so i, don't I, know. I,
0: I can't i can't imagine what it was like to have this to manage on top of it.
1: No, exactly. So, I mean, and, and, you know, for a long, a long period, politics kind of took us, you know, really like a sandstill. And when we uh, first, you know, the pandemic broke out, the liberals were in the midst of a leadership race. Um, but all of that really just went to the back burner for a while. And, and we just focused again. I mean, I know that our team uh, at the riding office, our approach and a lot of my colleagues was just to do our best to relay the government information as it came through and also make ourselves as available, particularly through social media, to people to reach out to us because you know the old days of going into the office, not really there. I mean, of course, people could always call, but really, uh, we just try to, to make ourselves as available as possible and try to be as transparent as possible. they say, this is what the government said, not trying to be very partisan, not trying to put it out there, but people really did let us know, too, uh, when they weren't pleased with the government decision or they were happy with the government decision. So in a way, we really did have the the pulse of the community. And uh, at least in our neck of the woods, and this is all across Quebec, I, I, I gather, um, we had meetings with our local health board. Uh, at points, it was daily. Sometimes it was every two days. Now it's gone. I've been reduced to once a week. But we were just doing our best to say, this is what people are calling our office with, flooding us with emails. And you know they don't always have that same ability at the top end of managing a huge health Board to know what's going on, so once uh at the beginning we struggled a little bit, all of us to find our footing, we worked really well with our civil servants and our health administration to do our best to get services out and information out to the community
0: How are you doing? How did you cope uh during this whole uh year year and a half
1: um I mean it was uh the, the beginning of the pandemic I'll never forget because my parents were some of the first people in Quebec to actually contract the virus oh, wow. uh, my 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 dad probably got it when he went to a conference in Ottawa, or maybe just on the train home from work uh, in Montreal. But he was one of the first. So right off the get-go, I mean, COVID hit home very quickly, um, and uh, you know it was so hard at the beginning too because we didn't really know what was the, you know, what was going to happen to my parents. Um, you knew that we sort of had that timetable that you know, fourteen days, ten to fourteen days, usually met somebody if they got really sick. Those would be the periods. Where you you they would have to be admitted to a hospital, and at that point, getting admitted to a hospital is still very scary. Doctors really didn't know how to treat COVID, so I remember that at the beginning just being, you know, right off the bat, pretty terrifying. And um, luckily, my parents were were okay. They never had to go to the hospital. Uh, they were sick though. Like it was a good month long that they were, you know, wow. two weeks where they were very flu-like, and then after that, they started to recover. But it was a, it was a bit of a long haul. Um, so that, that was right off the get-go. I mean, I definitely felt the fear of COVID. Um, but generally overall, I mean, I was lucky that I was, you know, able to go back to the national assembly work and have colleagues and so many of my friends, and I don't know how your situation has been George, but they've been at home literally now since the beginning of the pandemic with their families. And it's, you know, it is not easy in some ways working from home has its advantages, but other times people kind of miss that socialization they get with the office. So at least i've always been able to go to the national assembly and again restricted and reduced but still able to see colleagues chit chat with people in the hallways work with colleagues in the commission um so that part i was very lucky that i wasn't super isolated um and again but it was still hard i have a huge family i have a huge network of friends and not to really to be see them for a year has been tough but i also fell in love during the pandemic and i am dating my fellow colleague Mahua Risque, So. Uh, yeah. The pandemic also delivered a weird uh, gift to us, yeah. <laughs> to me, myself. So that's some very good news that came out of it. Uh, but it was also very unexpected too. Um, uh, you know, we all had a little bit more free time to just sort of reflect on our life and where we wanted to go. So that was something that happened uh, during the pandemic. So I'm at least coming out with that gain from from it. But uh, so it real like everyone else, it was just a huge mixed bag of emotions throughout the pandemic. Donald Trump... American elections. Uh, yeah. there was just so much going on in the world. It was really just kind of highs and lows all across. Um, and the lows could be really low. Um, and you just felt your heart would break for your community when you know you would get these cases in the CSSLDs or seniors residents where just waves of people would pass away, people that you knew, people, families that you knew. Uh, and it was just that that was really tough for sure. But uh you know, I think, again, there, there'll be a lot of times people will have a lot of time to do some introspection about how did this year and a half really go for them? And I, I think we'll see kind of a new phase of our history come from this.
0: Yeah, and I also think that it's uh, it's important. Well, I, I'm sure that from from your perspective, uh, and I mean you're in opposition, so I'm assuming that from the government's perspective as well, this has already started uh, yeah. to kind of think of what do we do next, right? I mean, we're yeah. we're kind of seeing the 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 light at the end of the tunnel, and it's fine. We're all happy, of course. We look behind at this horrible year and a half, where, like you mentioned, uh, you know, thousands. Of our uh, of our uh, you know the citizens here in Quebec uh, passed away. Others suffered, you know, maybe uh, mental health issues, economic business. Like there's all these things that were impacted, and I'm just curious to see now how the government is going to um, to set the stage uh, for this post pandemic period.
1: Yeah. And we'll we'll have to see. I mean, the tone's already started to be set a little bit, at least that it seems like the CAC wants to get back into playing the politics a little bit of division and that there are good Quebecers and bad Quebecers. Uh, we don't need more immigrants in this province, you know, sort of back to where we were in mean, the last campaign, the year leading up to the last campaign uh, in 2018, uh, you know, and trying to put the French language front front, you know, forefront the debate around the French language. So reverting back to, I guess, some old habits that maybe some Quebecers thought we had put behind us or that we had resolved, but we're in the thick of those discussions. But also, at least for me, um, kind of seeing a little bit too about how international leaders are setting the table. Uh, During the pandemic, there was also, you know, uh, and I would say the end of the Donald Trump reign, China really started to assert itself in the world and openly said, we're here to compete with the West on all fronts, right? Um, economically, militarily. We're here. We want to be the dominant power in the world. So that was, a, at least in my mind, a huge paradigm shift. And China occupied a lot of the space in those international organizations that the United States retreated from. So you saw the G7 this past weekend that they're shifting a little bit to say, this is not saying that we're trying to go towards an, uh, you know military conflict. I don't think everybody wants that. But the economic side of things is extremely important because for so many years, we just said, oh, well, you know, China We'll always be able to get from them, and the you know trade balance will work out. But they're really taking steps to say that we're going to you know produce some of the most important goods in the world to be self sufficient, not have to need the West. So there's going to be a challenge for the Western leaders to say how do we make sure our economies adapt to be ready for that that competition and to win also too, right? I mean that's the important thing as well. So how do we keep our you know our population highly educated? How do we retain talent? Uh, how do we compete with infrastructure? All those things are, are gonna be crucial, I think, in my mind going forward, that I think the next decade plus will be dominated by China versus the West for economic uh, you know, supremacy of the world, or at least how that is gonna go, how are we gonna to live together in such a fierce competition? Uh, and then of course, you know, a little bit more locally here at home um, and climate change was a huge issue going into the pandemic and, and coming out, I think it will come back too, is that how do we build a modern economy and don't add more greenhouse gas emissions to our our current, um, you know, uh, amount that we put into the atmosphere every year. I think that's going to be a huge, huge thing. And the, indus- the companies and industries that flourish in certain jurisdictions will be able to sell that technology around the world and their expertise around the world. So Quebec has to make sure it is in the right place to be able to do that and right. compete with the rest of the world.
0: You mentioned some... Uh- Uh, Some hot topics that were, you know, very present before the 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 pandemic, and they 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 seem to have resurfaced. And you're talking about the language one, and that that strikes close to home because you're also the official opposition critic um, with respect to the relations with uh, English-speaking Quebecers. Uh, the government has tabled a new bill that you guys will be looking into starting uh, September in the new session, uh, coined you know the new Bill One Hundred One. Yeah, uh, I didn't read it. I mean, there's a lot of articles there, but the the stuff that has come out in the media and the 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 the, the short kind of um, uh, um, the short little excerpts that have come out. In my opinion, I mean, and, and I'm curious to see what, what, what you think. I mean, you're much closer to the English-speaking community than I am. Uh, it seems as though it's much more symbolic than anything else. I don't know, and I don't know if you've read the bill. Maybe you have. Um, do you really think there's going to be an impact on a societal level from the things that are proposed in that bill? Or it's it's been presented more as an illusion for... Uh, François Legault and the CAC government to kind of stay on that path of we are the nationalist government?
1: Um, I would say that what they're proposing is very much not symbolic. And I take Simon Jolin Barrett at his word on this one when he says I'm changing the constitution is because I want the words we're putting in the constitution to have an impact on future legal decisions. Um, there's no doubt that uh, the CAC have brought forward their vision that uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedom set out by Canada in you know, 1982, at least for questions of identity, and who knows how far down the road they're going to go, don't think it should apply here in Quebec. Um, it's a real challenge to our constitutional system we have here. So um, I don't think those words being added to the Constitution are symbolic at all. Um, and I think a lot of the measures are putting in here, uh, at least locally here. So that's one thing. Um, the notwithstanding clause too being used across. It's not just for the English speaking community. There's a lot in here, and you know, I've gone through the bill. I've gone through the current French charter that exists and how to change it. Um, there's a lot that they're you know giving blanket cause to notwithstanding clause to allow you know investigations, professional orders. Really going over a lot of just very important rights that all Quebecers have. Uh, this this bill will give the government quite a lot of power. Uh, to really, you know, trample through some of the basic concepts of our democracy. And the final thing is that it's a massive bill to add a lot of bureaucracy, paperwork, and red tape for businesses and individual citizens to get access to services uh, in the ang- English language, but also just to operate in general. So um, this, is, this is a huge bill. And it kind of was sold because, you know, the CAC put up trial balloons about bilingual municipalities, about... This and that, and then in the end, you know, they said, "Well, none of that was in there." But in the end of the day, you know, there's going to be huge impacts for CJEPs long term. Uh, there's going to be huge impact too for access to services in English language because the second the French Charter takes precedence over everything, and French is the only, you know, official language of the the state. What does that mean to rec- about receiving services in English language? Right right now it's not a, you don't have no English speaking person or Aliphone has a constitutional right to go and get services in English language in Quebec. It doesn't exist. It exists in the legislation that we have so that you can do it. It's not, it's not guaranteed. And I think in some ways this will erode it long-term, put at jeopardy some access to services, particularly in the regions where there's just not as many bilingual people to necessarily work, uh, you know, whether it be for helping uh, speech therapists, psychologists, go down the list, uh, employ, employ Quebec workers. So it's, um, it's a huge, huge challenge to not just English speaking community, but all of Quebec and a really big shift. Uh, so I would say that it is not symbolic and the debates that will be coming up in the couple of uh, after, you know, in September, October, November, will probably demonstrate how far this bill actually goes. Um, and we'll see, Will it actually answer the problem that, you know, is put out there, that French is in decline. And, you know, that there's too many people speaking other languages at home uh, will this bill actually resolve any of those problems? And I really don't know.
0: Yeah, that's the question that I had because, and and you're right. I mean, we're going to see much more of it in the, in the coming months, but, uh, and I, and I agree with you that up front when they, you know, they, they, um, they established issues that were kind of like, for example, you know, the recognition of the, of Quebec as a nation to, to, you know, to transcribe it in the, to change the constitution. I mean that, you know, that at the end of the day, nothing really is it doesn't really mean anything because the federal government has already acknowledged uh Quebec as a separate nation the fact that uh municipalities now are you know risk losing their uh, their um uh the, the the bilingual status they're still giving it they're still giving that right to the, the, the municipal administrations to pass resolutions and to keep the bilingual status if they want. So at the end, that doesn't really change anything. The 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 CGIPs, that, the, the, you know, there were like five or six points that they came out to show this is what we're doing. And obviously, there's a lot more things that are hiding behind like you're talking about the administrative aspect of it and, you know, the red tape, which has to be uh, looked into more uh, more in detail. But I also got stuck a little bit on that CGIP, uh, capping the enrollment uh, and uh, not allowing for uh, Uh, well prioritizing English speaking Quebecers how how does that work this is what I want to understand because there's already English uh, CGIPs that have come out and they um, uh, they, they've uh, positioned themselves against this uh, legislation because they fear that the 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 French population might exit Quebec because they want to get their education in English and they won't be able to do that if this bill uh, should pass
1: yeah so that's a huge concern and you know Think about, yeah, there's a a large, you know, population, Vanier, Dawson, John Abbott, that is francophone that's there currently. And francophone, anglophone, I mean, it's hard to say because so many families are also, you know, mixed in now. Uh, But I really think of like, you know, the heritage CGEP out in the Gatineau area. Uh, There's a CGEP out in um, Quebec City and also uh, just next to Bishops. Those places are pretty much full of francophones. Um, So the second you reduce them, I don't think that those institutions will be able to survive very long. So, but how will that cap work? Who, who also, because right now, a lot of the bill 101 to determine what institution you can go to educationally is based on your certificate uh, that is handed down from a parent or a grandparent. And a lot of times those certificates uh, doesn't really exist, right? So, um, but just kind of to think that if you're right now an Anglophone parent sending your kids to a French school, will they not have access because they went through the French Reseau to get into an English CCHF? And there's things like that that aren't extremely clear at this point in time that the privilege or access would be granted based on what schools you went to beforehand. So you could also be handicapping people who are English-speaking, who decided to send their kids to high school in French and elementary. Uh, So things like that we have to be really careful about. But again, I don't know, George, in in an ideal world uh, and all these debates too, that's going on around with McGill and transferring over buildings. Right. I mean, just just put money into higher education. Point final. I tie this back into my point about the future of you know the economic challenges that we'll face as a province and as a country uh being in competition for the first time in a long time there's a, a superpower who is a true rival to who we are who has amazing manufacturing ca- uh, capabilities stronger and stronger education systems able to send their student you know their children out to schools across the world where we're in direct competition with that and i would just say put as much money as we can right now into all those places you know into all of our universities keep them you know, cheap for people to go to and make sure we're you know, pouring in R&D dollars to bring in some of the top talent to here. And I, I just come sometimes think that those debates get a bit frustrating because you hear so many people that come out and say like, I went to uh, CJEP in English. I went to McGill or Concordia. I'm a Francophone. And I'm no less Francophone than I was when I entered into those institutions. So sometimes these debates okay. take on a life on their own. And I don't think they reflect the reality of what a lot of people on the ground and particularly Quebec parents who are Francophone, want for their children, which is to be bilingual. And just like anglophone parents and allophone parents, and you know everybody wants their children to know multiple languages. And I, I think we need to make sure that we can at least do our best to facilitate that. But capping in this structure, um, the CGEPs are right to have some worries and no one's super sure right now how this is all gonna work. Uh, so we're gonna have to see during the parliamentary debates the minister to explain himself on this. And it also gives a minister of justice and the French language a lot of power over the education system with what he's doing currently, which is a huge shift, right? It's the education ministry that runs education, but here we're gonna have a pretty big in, um, you know infringement from the minister responsible for the French language into the education sector, which uh, we'll have to see how that works because you know, George, how ministries, you know, yeah, when they have yeah. to work together, not always the easiest. <laughs> you know, I, ha- I
0: had your colleague uh, Christopher Skeet on last week yeah, and yeah. I asked him the, the, the question uh, specifically with bilingualism. And the argument that he had was that if you favor bilingualism at the end of the day, English will always supersede. We've seen it across Canada. Mind you, I don't know if across Canada they have that much uh, effort put into preserving the French language, which we know, uh, you know, factually they don't. Uh, but his argument was that if we kind of uh, go along trying to have this equal weight on both languages, like for all the kids to learn English and French so that we can have this society that can speak both languages efficiently and effectively, at the end of the day, uh, uh, English will always win over French and we're just setting up uh, the our, our roads to... Uh, Eliminate if you want the French language, or reduce it very, you know, significantly. How do you feel about that?
1: Um, you know, I I I disagree in a lot of ways because I'll go back to the examples of Francophones themselves who say I took on the challenge because the public and you know private sector uh, of education didn't allow them to become bilingual enough. Who never felt that they lost, you know, their Frenchness uh, or how well they speak French or how much they felt as a Francophone Quebecer. So I, you know, I leave it in their hands. And, um, I understand, of course, it's a huge challenge. I mean, Quebec sits in a sea of, you know, 330 million Anglophones, give or take right uh, on the continent. And that can't, you can't ever underestimate, uh, that fear. And, and it's a true fear of your culture and your identity being take over. But at the same time, Quebec has always, you know, shown itself to be extremely resilient. Um, the english language has been dominant for a long time now and uh quebec has still maintained a rate if not increased the amount of people in the province who speak french you know when bill 101 first came into place they estimate that probably roughly under 80 percent, probably in between 75 to 80 percent of the population spoke the french language we've now at least gone to a point where 94 percent of the population can hold a conversation in french understand french so that's that's a big step but that doesn't mean that everyone in that kind of you know uh, additional fifteen to sixteen percent that we added in is capable of working in the French language, right? Like that's another that's another huge challenge that we we have to tackle is making people more proficient in the French language. Um, but again, I'm not against individual bilingualism. Um, I same thing I say to my you know my friends or English friends who don't learn a lot of French, like you should try to enjoy watching some of you know the Quebec uh, TV shows that are actually pretty good. Get to know some of the artists, uh, singers. Like there's a lot of talent here. And it just opens up more doors, uh, exploring another culture. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not sold on that either. That uh, uh, if individuals start to learn English, then English is just completely, you know, predominant. Uh, I think people and francophones across the board will always fight to protect their language and make sure it's important uh, in their daily lives.
0: Uh, let's go back to that constitutional change because I had looked into yeah. it. Uh, when, you know, with this whole issue of this Bill ninety six came out, and I understand that when it came down to uh, uh, changing, you know, officializing Quebec as a nation, there wouldn't be much, you know, uh, you know, too many complications. But with respect to making a French the official language of Quebec, then that relied specifically from Ottawa. And this morning in La Presse, there was an article saying that in their uh, um, bill that they're going to be proposing in the next couple of weeks, I guess, because their their session is almost over as well. They want to table the bill as well, that they would recognize French as the, the official language of Quebec. I don't know if you saw that article in La Presse today. So it seems as though there's this wave from Ottawa that is parallel to um, uh, what the Quebec government is uh, kind of suggesting I don't know if it's political or, I mean, you know, we all suspect that there's a federal election looming. Uh, They don't want to really go against uh, um, Francois Legault since he still kind of hovers above everyone else in terms of popularity and all the polls that are coming out. Um, So there is this kind of wave from Ottawa suggesting that, yeah, they're just going to give in to, uh, to the requests that are coming from Quebec.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, again, what I would say is that the distinction too, and even just adding in the Quebec as a nation, I'm I'm not necessarily going to deny that, you know, I know that there's been a motion passed at the federal level, but a change to the constitution is much different than a motion passed uh, by the, the the House of Commons. Um, wh- who is the Quebec nation? Are we talking about a nation that's defined by its territory? Are we talking about a nation that's defined by the language that the person speaks to be included in that nation? So, we have a long way to go on that because the second that the Quebec nation is in our constitution, what does that mean? And and what does that mean for Indigenous nations? You know, it, it really, we have to be wary just to say that oh, we're not too sure we'll change anything um, because the nation and if it's based specifically on language, we'll have to see how that all plays out. Again, I'm not an expert, but I I'm raising some flags just to say that I have concerns and I would like to better understand that. I know the constitutional law, you know, lawyers and professors are out there debating this, but we'll have to see. Um, and again, Simon-Jean Barrette says these are not symbolic things. They will have weight and precedent in our courts. Um, I guess what the federal government did today, too, uh, it's a little bit confirming that there's an asymmetrical treatment of minority languages and communities in the country that, Bilingualism is favored in the rest of Canada, but maybe not, uh, in Quebec through federal institutions. Again, I'm not too sure because I just read the article. I don't know by adding in the bill, what is that actually going to mean for their policies and, and, and the programs that exist. Um, I'm sure there'll be some wording in there to try to protect the English speaking community. So I have to wait and see a little bit what the impacts are, but that will be put into legislation from understand, which is a precedent. Um, And how will go about, again, defending the French language and promoting it in Quebec? We'll we'll have to see. But uh, I'm not, you know, with that one, we're a little bit sort of, um, you know, I know that the QCGN and the community groups are are a little bit concerned about that. But um, if it does improve, for example, the use of more French in federal institutions and when working in the federal government or in federally chartered uh, institutions like banks or Air Canada, maybe that's a good thing. Like, I have nothing against the DP of Of you know a big company uh, that is a crown sorry not a crown corporation but exists under federal institutions having to maybe communicate and speak more in French that's not a bad thing for people in Quebec who are bilingual good for you it means you have an advantage over other people when you try to go work in Ontario uh, you can maybe get those VP jobs or whatever it may be but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing but again the devil's always in the details the news headline pops out people want to you know like you said elections are on the horizon so we'll have to see but these things also have long-term impacts and can also have an impact on you know jurisprudence going forward so we'll have to see when it actually is put in there what the minister uh, minister jali has to say about it all
0: uh i, I want to go uh t- touch on another topic with you because you're also sure. the position critic uh, for indigenous affairs yep. and it, it just feels as though every single year there's all these new things that surface that demonstrate how badly we've treated the indigenous people uh not only in Quebec but across Canada we had yeah. the 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 215 children that were that that were buried out in BC that that, yeah. that that we learned about 2 weeks ago or 3 weeks ago um you know there's there's a huge issue right here in Quebec with uh, Joyce uh, Eshakwan that was essentially just left to 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 die in a hospital here in in Joliette i think it was yeah. um where do we? And, and then, in addition to all that, we have a government that's still very reluctant to uh recognizing that there is systemic racism in, in Quebec. So it's this weird little puzzle that we're that 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 we're in. How do you how do you feel about that? I mean, with a position that you have, I mean, how do you see these?
1: Yeah, Um I think sometimes we we just have to again we have to face our history with Indigenous people. That is is tragic. There were policies of assimilation, the Indian Act that was drawn up, uh, you know, by the federal government in the late 1800s was a real piece of, you know, racist legislation. It it, it was for sure inspired by what, you know, policies were taking place in the South United States of America, 100%, you know, like the right to vote taken away, right to political assembly taken away, the right for cultural gatherings taken away, your children taken away and put into educational institutions to basically be assimilated and brainwashed and have the indian taken out of them i mean that all happened that was all federal government policy dictated and the provinces can't just wash their hands and say they had no role to play because that's not the case either provinces have control over development of natural resources farming things like that where well the land that we found good for development there were people already there and we had a good way of making sure that they were booted to the side or what their traditional practices of hunting and their economy were were taken away from them so we can't Exclude ourselves from that, um, and the reports, especially here in Quebec, demonstrate that there is systemic racism. That our institutions need to change and have a major overhaul. Um, and I think that part of the the issue, this government, you know, the CAC has always said there's no systemic racism. Quebecers are not all racist. No one's saying every single Quebecer is racist, uh, but there are long-term impact of these decisions made by these institutions over many, many, many years that are clearly have had very detrimental impacts on the socioeconomic status of indigenous people. And, you know, when the reserve systems were set up or communities were drawn up, they were pushed to the side and put to the area where the land was not interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, the thing I always try to tell people too, when they talk about systemic racism, it's not Greg Kelly from Jacques Cartier who's saying it exists. It's indigenous people who tell me, Greg, this is my existence. And when the government says there's no systemic racism, it's like they're denying what I live. And I'm telling them this is what I live. So I think there's been a huge turnaround with Joyce O'Shaquan. Uh it, it really was a little bit of Quebec's, you know, George Floyd saying that, man, we really have a problem in the health system. And the government tried to say, well, it's just in this one place. But no, it, there's cases all across Quebec. But now we're also starting to see more of the stories in the judicial system, uh, in social housing and access to that. Uh, you, you go down the list and there's just so many cases where indigenous people are discriminated against based on the fact that they're indigenous and people say, you're just a druggie. You're just a drunk. You're just uneducated. You don't know what you're talking You know, there there's so many stereotypes that get applied to them that mean they don't get fair access and or equal access to services in this province. You,
0: you know, it, it's crazy that you say that because, and I, I just remembered some um, something that happened back in the day. We, we uh, I think, it was back in 2010 or somewhere like that there was a plan for the government to convert the old Chinese hospital in Villaray mm-hmm. into a, a residence for all the uh, the indigenous people that would come to get receive health services in Montreal and they had to bring their family over there's no place f- for them to stay and they wanted to convert that in a certain sort of residence for them to stay uh, temporarily while they received care um there was this and this is the first time that I ever witnessed it. I mean, you know, I grew up in Park X. We didn't we didn't get get to see too many indigenous people. You know what I mean? So yeah. we didn't really yeah. come in contact with these communities. But uh, that was the first time that I witnessed it, where. Publicly, people, there was this outcry against this movement and it became political. I remember a municipal counselor delivering pamphlets to the residents saying that this is a horrible idea and we can't have, uh, um, you know, alcoholism in our neighborhood, and our streets. And it was ridiculous. Finally, yeah, the project yeah. didn't happen. It, it, it worked. Yeah. The, the 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 maneuver worked. It, it didn't go through.
1: Yeah. And, and in the end, that project ended up being built on, uh, uh, in Dorval, uh, on the 540. Yeah. uh, yeah, but anyways, but it's just, uh, you know, and it's an example because they have to come down to the South to use, you know, to get treatment in our hospitals here. And, you know, um, are there indigenous people uh, who end up in downtown who, you know, are part of the homeless community? Absolutely. But, to just, you know, there's also white people down there who are homeless, you know, like, and it just like to blanket them, uh, as all like that. It's sad, but it's the perception that a lot of people do have, unfortunately. And again, sometimes it's also how the light is shone on indigenous people too, that we, we do hear some of the su- success stories, but you know, we hear about the other situations sometimes more often. And it, it's too bad because again, we have to break down stereotypes. And I know that the, uh, Assembly of uh, of First Nations in Quebec and Labrador is working really hard to sort of change those stereotypes, bring Indigenous culture to the forefront, bring the success stories to the forefront. But again, this sort of attitude that they blanket everyone as if they're all the same is one of the huge issues. And again, it seeps into our institutions where the people who work them and are giving services to Indigenous people in Quebec, that's what they think of them. How
0: do we build bridges, Greg? How do we? How do we at least start fixing the problem? I mean, well, there's no, there's no magic switch that we can just flip and fix the situation, right? I mean, yeah. this has been going on for, uh, for for decades, if not centuries. How do you build bridges that create trustworthy links between the communities uh, and the government, or in general, Quebec society?
1: Yeah, I mean, education, 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 George. If there's more ways that we can have Indigenous content in the history curriculum, school curriculum for our students when they're in primary, you know, elementary, daycare, uh, you know, go down the list. That is That that would be great. Uh, maybe, again, like in BC, they've started to adapt, having some, you know, Indigenous languages taught in the schools. Um, but I think that those are some steps. But, again, also maybe trying to do a better job of sharing indigenous cultural events in our big celebrations. Like when I was always really, I was in Canada, I was in Calgary for one Canada day and I was just thought it was so cool to see that the Canada day celebration was also a celebration of diversity. There was indigenous people there. I remember there was a tent where they were giving kids turbans to wear and you know like turbans are Canadian. Like they had all these different kinds of segments of the population really expressing Canadian and Canada's diversity, which I thought was cool. I'd never really seen that (laughs) done in Quebec, you know, and we think of like the Fête Nationale or even Canada Day celebrations here. It's not really done the same, but maybe that would be a good thing. The Fête Nationale, there's way more inclusion of Quebec's indigenous cultures present at those big events so that we know that they're there and we know how good they are and really celebrated and put it on full display Uh, and same for a Canada Day celebrations. Um, I, I think those are some ways that we continue to to build some bridges between each other. And again, real institutional change has to continue. Continuing finding indigenous people to nominate uh, at the highest levels, um, really incorporate them in the decision making, because so often, George, they're an afterthought. And even just think about Bill 96, the Quebec government decided we're going to go change the constitution they didn't go speak to the indigenous communities, Quebec, who said, well, what what about us? And first and foremost, what are you saying that Quebec is the only language of this province? What about our languages? Right. It's a pretty good question, right? Because their languages were here before ours. Um, So, uh, again, I feel like Bill 96 does have a little bit of that old attitudes from the 1980s. We still haven't learned our lesson that we're going about making all these massive constitutional changes. And nobody's sort of saying, well, the indigenous people of this country... They have a few changes they'd like to make this constitution as well. Who's speaking to them and who's asking them what they would like to change in the constitution? Because they have a lot of a lot of things, a lot of gripes, a lot of things that they would like to change. Uh, and, and I think for our country going forward, that's the only way we can really get to a full, complete path of reconciliation.
0: All right. I know that you got to go, but I want to talk to you soon. Uh, uh, quickly, I mean, about this whole issue about ethics that has spurred in the National Assembly. uh Yeah. Yeah, around uh, Minister uh, Fitzgibbon, unprecedented move by the ethics commissioner to request that he either step down or be kicked out. I've never seen that. I've never even heard about that. Uh, The argument from the other side is that, look, he tried. He had whatever, I don't know, 13 uh, accounts or whatever, 13 different types of shares that he sold. He was left down to two that he couldn't. what is your opinion on all this? I, f- personally, I, I I still think that behind the scenes, he's still going to be there. I mean, they, they transferred the file to Eric Girard, who is the finance minister. I have a feeling that, you know, Mr. Fitzgibbon is still going to be around somewhere uh, behind the scenes. Yeah. But the question yeah. that I always, th- you know, I don't know the details. And obviously, I mean, the law is the law. If the ethics... Um, uh, if the ethics demand that you have to act a certain way then you have to act a certain way but the question that immediately kind of popped in my mind and you know this because we worked behind the scenes for a number of years even before you got elected there was this huge effort made at least from the liberal party to bring in people to attract people into politics that weren't really associated to like, you know, being career politicians or having some link to the party or, you know, uh, some relation to fundraising or anything like that. And it wasn't easy. And the argument now is that by treating businessmen or, you know, these non-political figures this way, we're probably closing the door to having these types of people potentially come into the political system, the political environment and contribute, because I do believe that they have this other way of seeing things and that they can contribute much differently than you or I, for example, that grew up into this political class.
1: Yeah, um, for sure. I, again, there have been a lot of businessmen and women who have come into politics and had to sell their shares even before there was an ethics commissioner. And they did it because there are just questions again, Ethics that it's not okay for you to be a minister of a uh, of a you know department that is funding some companies you have personal shares in. And one of the reasons, from what I understand, that Mr. Fitzgibbon doesn't want to sell, it's not that he can't make a, a profit, is that he thinks at some point that these companies will be very successful and he will just make more profit, right? And yeah, we get it. He took a risk, I understand, but he also entered politics knowing what the rules were, and they were very clearly explained to him. Um and, and he could sell them. He just isn't, he's reluctant to do so right now. But, you know, uh he I don't think in the end of the day you're you're coming in to serve the public and the public good, right? And Mr. Fitzgibbon has a lot of money. Uh you know, he's very wealthy. He can leave politics tomorrow and he'll be fine. Um, but you know, Pierre Carl Pellodot was asked to put his his trust, uh his his shares into a you know blind trust, which he did. So other people before him have played by the rules and he should get no, you know, exception from that, despite the fact that he might be a great business person and some of the business community came out and said, well, he's so great and we need to not prevent people from joining politics. But, you know, I just kind of disagree with that, that uh, people who want to serve the public good will find ways to make it work. And I just find it so frustrating, the, the CAC's attitude, because you remember, George, for the last years, how they would, you know, really harp on the liberals for guilt by association. Um, that we were all corrupt and we we're all part of the mafia, and all of us, if we went to go raise money, it was because we were trying to bend the rules or break the rules, and it really did a lot of damage to uh, the public image of the party, and also, too, just in general, people don't trust politics and politicians. So um, they promised to be better. They promised to, you know, uh, be the most transparent, and ethical government ever. And then on multiple fronts, now we've seen, quest- you know, cases where people have not been ethical. And I think the other thing just to add about Mr. Fitzgibbon, we know that he has some of his other colleagues who did sell off some shares and follow the rules. Right. So why does he get, why does he get a break and they don't, right. um, you know, the rules are there. So follow them. And uh, now the CAC is saying, well, we have to change the rules. And I just find that just, again, it's, it's really hypocritical because we want people to have faith in what we're doing is for the better good of everyone, not for the interest and shares and profits Of a few individuals in our society
0: there is a sentiment that seems to be circulating and I know that obviously Quebec Solidaire is uh, is very much behind it there was uh, I think Vincent Marisal who's probably the the person responsible for flagging this to the ethics uh, commissioner Uh, but in general there's this movement that seems to be kind of growing especially in those circles where it's either politics or business you cannot mix I don't know if I agree with that. I want to know a little bit how you feel.
1: No, I, you have to. And again, you need business people. You need community people. You need people from all walks of life. Uh, you know, in our gang, we have former school board commissioners, teachers, um, lawyers, doctors. It goes across the spectrum. And, and you really do need that because that's what's important. But I think the other thing that in the end... Um, Remains, and it, it's kind of you know the flexibility to find ways that people need to get to know their local candidates. That's that's the most important thing, uh, and I always kind of try to preach that you know well, we're we're open, we're accessible. Come reach out to us and speak to us. But uh, I don't think that it's just the people that come from the community. You know, community world. I'm a community guy, but uh, I do like having the fact that people around our caucus table come from the business milieu and can kind of share their viewpoints of the business economic side of things uh you really just need a diverse group of people that's the way that democracy functions people who can go out there and be community and poverty you know fight against those those issues that are really at the local level but then sometimes when you have huge economic questions the direction of society going 10 years down the road you want some pretty sharp business minds around the table for things like that as well so it's all about harmony and i don't think that saying that one or the other is better uh but again the rules should apply to everyone um and we don't want to go down this path, too, that if you just make everything so easy that people can have all their shares and all these companies and not have to ever change. Well, then we get to the United States style of politics, where people literally just enter politics to the benefit of corporations and the elite and high up there. So you have to make sure that you're always finding a good balance out there. And I also kind of feel bad that Mr. Fitzgibbon, yeah, he's a big businessman, but what about all the people around the National Assembly who come from small, and medium businesses? that had to find ways to sell off their company or put it again in a blind trust, do whatever they had if they had government, of course, you know, contracts. They had to find ways to distance themselves. Um, I, I, he shouldn't have, be exempt from the rules just because he's bigger. All
0: right. I know you got to go, buddy.
1: Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> great, uh, great. Yeah, go for it.
0: What, what are the plans for the summer? Are you guys uh, doing anything? Or are you going
1: to no Why set plan i mean we're we're problem. still waiting to know like if i get a second dose what, what are sort of the recommendations for for potential travel uh even just to other provinces i mean we're really just sort of waiting to see what we can do this summer i'll put it that way but if not we'll just kind of hang out in montreal and go for walks uh go for hikes at mont Royal, uh eat at some good restaurants so nothing really uh nothing really set in stone at the moment george but uh Looking for some downtime maybe read some books, uh, recharge the batteries because, like you said, election year coming up. So uh we're gonna be uh full steam ahead for the next uh next three hundred and fifty uh sixty-five days, uh starting in October. It's gonna be really uh just a, a rush to the finish.
0: I appreciate your time, buddy. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to uh to catch up soon and uh, uh for find sure some sort of normalcy and grab a beer or something.
1: <laughs> hey, that that sounds like a plan, George. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Uh, take care, have a good one. Ciao, bye.